1 Samuel chapter 13. Would you find it with me tonight? 1 Samuel chapter 13. On these Sunday nights, we are going through the life of King Saul in the Old Testament. When you're narrative preaching or biography preaching, it's a lot different than what we're doing on Sunday morning. Sunday morning is more expository, taking a section, paragraph at a time. This morning was actually textual preaching. We just looked at the one verse. But when you're preaching through the Gospels or the Epistles, you're just verse by verse. But you don't do that when you're preaching through a narrative. It would take us a very long time. I talked to a preacher just the other day that is preaching through the book of Revelation. And he is 54 sermons in. He's in Revelation chapter 6. <laughs> he has a lot to say. He has a lot to say. And so he is now preaching on Revelation Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. Because he's trying to get done before the tribulation. That's what he's trying to do. <laughs> ago, we were at chapter 11, Nahavon. Nahash the Ammonite. I called it a spiritual victory. The victory is not in that chapter. You got to go to the end of the book. Spirit. And Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all caves and in thickets and in rocks and in high places and in pits. And some of the Hebrews went over Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. As for Saul, he was yet in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. And he tarried seven days according to the set time that Samuel had appointed. But Samuel came not to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. And Saul said, Bring hither a burnt offering to me, and peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. It came to pass that as soon as he had made an end of offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him, that he might salute him. And Samuel said, What hast thou done? And Saul said, Because I saw that the people were scattered from me, thou camest not within the days appointed, that the Philistines gathered themselves together at Michmash. Therefore said I, The Philistines will come down now upon me to Gilgal, and I have not made supplication unto the Lord. I forced myself therefore and offered a burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, Thou hast done foolishly. Thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God, which he commanded thee. For now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever. But now thy kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought him a man after his own heart. And the Lord hath commanded him to be captain over his people. Because thou hast not kept that which the Lord commanded thee. And Samuel arose and got him up from Gilgal unto Gibeah of Benjamin. Saul numbered the people that were present with him, about 600 men. I'll stop reading there, but the story is not complete. The narrative of 1 Samuel 13 and 14 goes together as one story. It is a battle and its aftermath. The reign of Saul has started on a very glorious note with his victory over Nahash the Ammonite, who had been terrorizing the tribes on the east side of the Jordan. If you would go back to chapter 11, you would see that Saul has shown righteous indignation against the cruelty of the Ammonites. He has exhibited daring courage to go up against an army when he himself has never led an army before. 
He was supernaturally empowered by the Spirit of God. He demonstrated strong leadership in rallying the nation behind him for a common cause. And he's even showed magnanimous restraint in not using the occasion to punish those men of Belial who had previously derided him. And so everything good that can be said about Saul is demonstrated in his first official act. And even somebody as skeptical of him as I am can find no fault in Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 11. But how a man finishes is more important than how a man begins. A good beginning is an advantage, but a bad beginning does not have to be fatal. There's many men that have started out slow or rough or foolishly or whatever, but had time to learn, to grow, to amend their ways so that their latter end overcame their earlier the tragedy of Saul's life is that though Saul had every advantage physically, intellectually, even spiritually, every advantage to make a good king, it all comes to a crashing halt only two years into his reign. You might think that this is the beginning of the end. That is not true. It is actually the end. Because though Saul is not removed from the throne for another 38 years, God pronounces that the dynasty is already over. No son of yours will ever sit on the throne of Israel, the United Kingdom. I think that every father in here would wish for his sons to have more success than he has. I, I would not want my sons to have a lesser ministry than I have. I would pray that they are able to one day do more and have more of an impact, have a bigger ministry, have more of an influence than I have been able to have. Whereas I used to pray mightily for God to use me, my more frequent prayer is for God to use my children. And if by his provision he chooses to give my sons, a greater ministry than I have had, then that would not be a point of jealousy. It would be a point of joy. So what would it be like? What would it be like to hear God pronounce that your children will not succeed because of your sin? Saul must live knowing the rest of his life that there will be no dynasty that none of his sons will succeed him to the throne. And in the end, his sons will actually die in the same battle of the Philistines that he dies in. And Saul's dynasty disappears as far as the monarchy goes. And the first step to that downfall takes place in the text that I have read to you. Now, now tonight, I'm not, I'm not going to preach long. I, I'm only going to deal with part of the story. But two years into Saul's reign, he is thrust unexpectedly and unwantedly into a war with the Philistines. Now, verse number one has given commentators and translators fits for, for a long, long time. But, but it reads to me that Saul has reigned two years when he is presented with his next test of leadership. And this time it is in the form of a conflict with the Philistines. The Philistines were a warlike 
society who dwelt mostly on the southern and the western borders of Israel. They thrived on invading their neighbors. By the time that the Israelite people came into Canaan, they were firmly entrenched on that southwestern part of Israel where now the Palestinians would live, and that's a whole different message for another time. There would be several hundred years of conflicts between the Philistines and the Israelites. In the book of Judges, there was a territorial dispute between the Philistines and the tribes of Dan and Judah. And you might remember that one of the judges, Samson, was from the tribe of Dan and he warred against the Philistines. But ultimately, the tribe of Dan was not successful. They had to abandon their inheritance and they had to move up north toward Galilee. And then the tribe of Judah, for during the period of the judges, they, they occupied a much smaller portion of land than they were given by Moses because of the Philistines. For Samuel chapter 4, there is a battle, the battle of Ebenezer in which the Philistines really rout the Israelites and, and the Israelites lost 30,000 soldiers in that battle. The Ark of the Covenant was taken. The sons of Eli were killed in that battle. From that time on, the Israelites are subservient to the Philistines. The Philistines destroyed Shiloh. The domination has been going on for many, many years, and, and that's one of the reasons why Israel wanted a king, was to help us against the Philistines. The Philistines. The Philistines didn't dominate all of Israel, but particularly the south areas. For example, in 1 Samuel chapter 11, Israel is able to muster an army of 300,000 men to go against Nahash. The Ammonites, the Philistines seem content to let them do that. And I've always wondered if they can muster 300,000 men against the Ammonites, then why couldn't those 300,000 men then go march against the Philistines? And I think that speaks to the hold that the Philistines had over them, both militarily and psychologically. The Pharisees, the Philistines didn't intend to wipe out the Israelites, but just keep them in subjection to them. They insulted the Israelites by, by, by setting up garrisons or little forts, if you might, where they would put a little contingency of soldiers in, in, in occupied territories to, to keep the Israelites from mounting any serious challenge to their occupation. This is the situation that we find in 1 Samuel 13. And the story begins by telling us that Saul had a standing army of 3,000 men. After the victory with Nahash the Ammonite, they, the army had retired to the homes, but 3,000 men stayed on in active duty. And Saul divided them into two companies. There was 2,000 in Michmash under his hand, and then there was 1,000 men under Jonathan's command at Gibeah. And everything is fine. Well, the trouble begins when Jonathan decides to attack one of the garrisons of the Philistines. And I think that Jonathan probably reasoned, this land belongs to us. God, God gave us this land. God told us to drive the inhabitants out. And perhaps if we take action, maybe God will help us and give us the victory. He's unwilling to accept things as they are. And so he leads his thousand men into an attack against the Philistines at Geba. And the Philistines never dreamed. They never dreamed that they would attack like that, such a daring move, and they are caught off guard. And I commend Jonathan for what he did, but basically what happened is he poked a sleeping bear. He woke the Philistines up. They are incensed. An attack on that garrison is an attack on our nation, and we will not let it go unpunished. 
And so the Philistines muster an army, 30,000 chariots, 6,000 cavalry, so many footmen, you couldn't even count them. And now Saul is thrust into a battle that he didn't want to fight. I gather that he would have rather just let things be, just exist under the circumstances, but all of that has changed now. So Saul sends out the call to muster the army again, and this time 300,000 doesn't show up. Oh, no, a lot of the men run and hide. The courage of chapter 11 is missing in chapter 13. Word also is quickly sent to Samuel for spiritual guidance. And Samuel sends word to Saul, gather your men at Gilgal and wait for me. I will be there in seven days and I will give you guidance as to what the Lord would have you to do. So Saul gathers at Gilgal with his men and he's waiting. While he's waiting, he's watching his army dwindle away as men begin to go AWOL. And every day the situation gets more dangerous. The Philistines are gathering. The army is dwindling. Saul is getting impatient. Saul is at wit's end. And by day seven, Samuel still has not shown up and Saul decides I must take matters into my own hands. So he calls for sacrifices. He offers a burnt offering. He offers a peace offering on his own, even though there's no priest to administer the offerings. And you probably wouldn't even need to read it to know what happens next. Samuel appears. Samuel had an uncanny way of just showing up when you least expected him to. Samuel comes on the scene. What hast thou done? Saul, what have you done? But Saul wasn't having any of it. You didn't come. It's the seventh day. The Philistines are gathering. The people are getting concerned. The soldiers are leaving. I forced myself, therefore, and offered a burnt offering. Have you ever forced? And I think that there are three great principles of life that I want us to gather from just this scene. The first is, in this scene, I, I want to say to you that obedience is not optional. Obedience is not optional. Now, to be honest with you, what Saul does in this scene doesn't seem to be all that bad. Samuel has instructed him to wait in Gilgal for seven days, and he almost made it. In fact, he waited till the seventh day. He just didn't wait till the end of the seventh day. He becomes impatient, but, but not by much. He then did violate the law when he offered the sacrifice that was supposed to be offered only by a priest. There was a clear separation of powers and the prophet and the king and the priest, they were not to intermingle duties with that separation of powers. And so, and so there's distinct responsibilities and distinct uh, uh, restrictions and, and Saul does violate that. But, but when, you, when you look at it, there are men in the Bible who did worse things than Saul. Solomon. Solomon married multiple wives. David, David set up on one of his loyal men to have him murdered in battle. And if you were to stack up all of the misdeeds, all of the sins of all of the kings and put them in a list, multiple wives, he didn't lose his kingdom. David had a man murdered, he didn't lose his kingdom. 
Samuel said to Saul, Thou hast done foolishly, thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God, which he commanded thee. For now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever. Huh. Does that mean that Saul from the tribe of Benjamin would have been the royal house of Israel forever? How do you reconcile that with Genesis 49 and verse 10? The scepter shall not depart from the tribe of Judah. How, how, how do you reconcile that? That, that? That's a good mystery. But the greatest mystery to me is the severity of the judgment of God for something that we don't consider to be the most serious sin ever committed. And I know that it reveals his heart and I know that it sets a precedence and I know that there is a pattern that will emerge in chapter 15, but it does not seem like the worst thing that you could do until you read in verse number 13, thou hast done foolishly, thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God, which he commanded thee. Oh, now it is serious. There was a commandment. There was a word of God binding. And it doesn't matter if to you it is little or big, serious or insignificant, binding or optional. Obedience is not optional. It is ours. It is ours to not minimize the commandment. It is not ours to rationalize our way and how quickly you and I justify our disobedience because of our circumstances, but God is not buying our excuses. Now, if I was a camp meeting preacher, I, I would just take this right here, and I would just take this, and I'd preach against everything that I disagree with. That's all that I need. I've got to have a verse. So I just take this. It's not optional to tithe or support missions. It's not optional to attend church or be missing. Now, now you need to amen me if you could amen me. All right. I mean, it's not optional to attend the movies. It's not optional. It's not optional to attend the movies. It, it's, it's not optional to drink a glass of wine. It's not optional to watch filthy things. No, I could go on forever. I could just do this all night long. But I'm not a camp meeting preacher. That's not my style. But, but you get the drift, right? If it is a command from God and you have half a verse that condemns it, then you and I are bound to obey. It is the height of hypocrisy to wave your King James Bible and talk about it being the final authority of life when it has no more authority over your life than Huckleberry Finn. You don't get to pick and choose which parts we're going to obey and get around the parts that we don't want to obey. That's not how it works. Well, I, I just think that it, it means something else. I, I just think there's more ways to look at that verse. I, I, I just think that you have to look at it in the light of the 21st century. I, I, I just think it doesn't matter what you think. It matters what does it say. By the way, if you're not saved, your sin is a sin of disobedience. You have rebelled against the law of God and you have rejected the gospel of Christ. And we don't want to say that lest we offend some sinner, but you have violated the law of God. And what you need to do is you need to submit your will to God's will and repent of your sins and trust him for salvation. Disobedience is what got you in this mess and only obedience to the gospel will get you out of this mess. But if you're saved, how are you doing in the matter of obedience? Is your life characterized by obedience or disobedience? There are some children that are generally obedient, but they get crossed up every once in a while. 
There are other children that are just pure rebels. They're just rebels. They don't do anything they're told unless they're bribed or whipped. And whichever one works, that's what you do. Do you have a life that generally pleases God? Sometimes the flesh gets in the way. Or are you like that little five-year-old out there on the playground that openly defies authority? Obedience is not optional. There's a second principle that I want to just gather quickly out of this passage. Obedience is not optional, but secondly, emergencies are not excuses. Do, Do you know why Samuel delayed coming to Gilgal? It could have been as a test for Israel. And we tend to think that tests are emergencies, not so. Tests are tests. You know how Ford Company tests their vehicles? They test them by pushing them to the limit. You don't test a car by gently driving down the country lane in perfect weather. That's not how it happens. But no, they they put it on the track and they push it as hard as they can in severe weather, extreme cold and extreme heat and they put it under hard conditions. That's not an emergency, that is a test. And sometimes, sometimes God takes us to the limit not to destroy us, but to test us. Your faith is not tested when you are drifting gently along life's highway. Your faith is tested under the extreme circumstances of life. Saul is convinced that his circumstances are dire enough to set the rules aside. But it is at those moments of life when you know that it's just a test of God. Twice in the book of Proverbs, somebody makes the excuse that there is a lion in the street. That would qualify as an emergency, wouldn't you think? There is a lion in the street. But they use that as an excuse to get out of a task that they are supposed to do. And by the way, the lion in most situations is a made-up lion. It is an imaginary lion. But they have invented a lion so that we can set the rule aside and do something else. I can't do what I'm supposed to do because of this extenuating circumstance. And most of our excuses are nothing more than an imaginary lion in the street to get us out of some responsibility. Emergencies are not excuses. Saul has forced himself to make the sacrifice. I forced myself. Samuel, 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 you are not considering the duress that I was under. You are not thinking about the stress on my life. Samuel, you are not thinking about what was happening. These are extenuating circumstances and I had to force myself under normal circumstances. I would have never offered that sacrifice under normal circumstances. I would not have crossed that line. But these are not normal circumstances. These are unusual circumstances. And how often, how often do we think that we have been given a special exemption, a special dispensation because of what I am going through? Under my circumstances, under my circumstances, my economic situation, I I shouldn't have to tithe. These are not normal circumstances. Under under normal circumstances, I I would be faithful to church, but, but, but these are not normal circumstances. I, I know what the Bible says. I, surely the Lord understands if I suspend the rules just for me, if we relax the, relax the standing because of what I'm going through, but emergencies are not excuses. 
part of dying to self is dying to our excuses. Maybe the excuse is an excuse to cover up a sin like Adam. Maybe it's, I put in this gold and out came this golden calf. That's an excuse. Maybe the excuse is to ignore calling like Moses. I, I don't speak well. I, I, I can't talk. Maybe the excuse is just a lack of trust in the Lord. The land is covered with giants and with grasshoppers and there's no way that we can take the land. Maybe the excuse is to reject Jesus Christ. Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Saul has a legitimate emergency on his hand. His situation is dire. The enemy is coming. They are determined to wreak havoc, but emergencies are not excuses. The third principle they give you, and then I'll be done. Obedience is not optional. Do you see that? Emergencies are not excuses. The third principle is that implications are not immediate. Samuel makes the pronouncement from the Lord. Because you disobeyed the Lord, the kingdom is going to be taken away from you. Does this mean that if Saul had wisely behaved himself and obeyed God, that God would have given him a dynasty? I think that all kings, all monarchies operate on the assumption of a dynasty where the throne is inherited and passed down to the eldest son. I just finished reading the biography of George Washington. The appeal of him being the first president coming off of that monarchy is that George Washington didn't have any children. Therefore, there's no temptation to revert back to a monarchy. For Saul's case, his eldest son was Jonathan. So Saul lost the throne, not just for himself, but he lost it for Jonathan. And I honestly don't know how it would have worked out. I, I, I honestly don't know. But Saul's family could have continued on the throne. Somehow, somewhere down the road, God would have installed a son of Judah on the throne. Only God knows. But regardless of how it could have been, it doesn't matter. Because it's over almost as soon as it began. And standing there that day, Saul heard the kingdom is over. He'll spend the next 38 years of his life under a cloud of judgment. He will spend most of his time as a king trying to kill the man that would be his successor, successor when God anointed his successor. God's already sought him out. The judgment has been pronounced though the sentence has not been passed. The seeds of destruction have already been sown, though it'll be a long time before he reaps the harvest. God's judgment is slow in coming, but it is sure. The consequences of our sin are not always known in the immediate. I think about this a lot now that I'm 54. Not old, but not young in the land of in-between. And I'm starting to have a few things creak and croak and hurt. And I, I think about this. I don't do anything about it, but I think about how there are many people with diseases in their body that's a consequence of how they lived 20 years ago. I think that there are people who are drowning in debt because of choices they made 20 years ago. That there are people who lived a lot of sin and finding out you got to pay for those sins. 
And just because you're not paying today does not mean that the debt has been canceled. Implications are not always immediate. As we get into the battle next week in the aftermath of the battle, you're going to see all of the character flaws. The wheels, the wheels are going to come off of the chariot. And when Saul begins this downward slide, it just picks up speed. And there are no more good years. There are no more flashes of leadership. There is no more exemplary leadership. It's all over. And every flaw that we will pick up in his life, you will see it in your life. You'll see it in the flesh. But here's the three principles tonight. Obedience is not optional. Emergencies are no excuse. Implications are not immediate.